0: It's Tracy, back with another episode of Truth, Lies, and Cover-Ups with my sidekick and super producer, Alex.
1: Mega producer Alex here. Thanks for having me. Oh, I'm glad to be here.
0: Mega producer. I'm going to be wow. mega
1: today. I could be hyper producer. That would be a, a, an offshoot of, I don't know if you caught in the news, this is completely off the topic, but uh, evidently the, the Koreans, North Koreans launched a new missile in the last couple of days. Yeah. It's a hypersonic missile oh which means 10 times faster than the speed of sound
0: well they say that that our anti-missile systems are going to have trouble with it because it goes it doesn't go straight it goes in, it curves around you don't know where it's going
1: yeah i don't think that's intentional i think that's north korean technology and engineering at this point <laughs> that you know they, they can make the things go fast they just can't put them where they want them to go which is i mean that's a far bigger challenge pointing it in the right direction is not good enough you actually have to get it there So at this point, I'm not convinced that they have a hypersonic weapon um, that's, you know, China has tested one. They're the first ones. We don't have anything like that. I have a hard time believing that North Korea, who's largely starving and in poverty, have been able to put together the engineering for a hypersonic weapon. But nonetheless, how do we get on hypersonic? Oh, yeah, because I am hyper mega producer.
0: (laughs) (laughs) We're going to go with it. (laughs) I hope that doesn't mean that you use North Korean engineering to uh, produce the show. But if you do,
1: you're the one that married the North Korean engineer.
0: I did not.
1: (laughs) You did. You did. Uh,
0: So the other day I called you. And where were you? You were in the drive-thru at Chick-fil-A.
1: I could be anywhere with all the times that you've called me. I mean, it could really be anywhere. But yeah, that was yesterday or the day before?
0: Two days ago. Yeah. Uh
1: Okay. And um, what was I doing? in the drive-through
0: you were getting chicken biscuits chicken cheese biscuits
1: that's right it was breakfast it was breakfast at chick-fil-a
0: it, it sounded more like lunch with everything they're putting on that biscuit
1: well it was a hustle to get in there and get a late breakfast because they closed it at 10 30 and it was like ten twenty-six, and you were laughing at me because you're like you're gonna get the crusty one that was just sitting on the floor underneath <laughs> the heat lamp for six hours that's true <laughs> which is why I ordered a custom chicken egg biscuit with no cheese and want no cheese on my biscuit, because that means they're inside like, ah, crap, man, we got to make another one. <laughs> <laughs>
0: now, do you think do you think that they that they have like the lunch patties and they're like, ah, we'll just put that on a biscuit and call it good? Or is it like a, an actual breakfast? Chicken? I think
1: what they do is they weed out the, the chicken patties that they get. And they're like, OK, the small ones go over here and we'll put those on the biscuit, which is smaller than the bun that we use after 1030. So I think they're just the small ones, and then they make the biscuits, and uh, and then the egg is—I mean, you know—self-explanatory, and a slice of American cheese, which I don't need that stuff dripping off there.
0: American cheese is not cheese. It makes me ashamed to be American. Okay, so um,
1: you ever noticed it says on the package, cheese food,
0: cheese product,
1: Ugh. cheese food is what it says. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, you know that's <laughs> that's 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 a little bit like our um, my guest today, Joel Joel Block.
1: Oh yeah, tell me about Joel.
0: He's a card counter.
1: (laughs) That's right. The blackjack guy, right?
0: Yeah. Team card counting. Just like that movie. Twenty one. You see that movie. Twenty one. I did not. Yeah. Well, it's all about card counting. And they were from MIT. He was out in the California way card counting. And uh, you know what they always said? Winner, winner, chicken dinner. So I bet you.
1: Winner, winner, chicken biscuit from Chick-fil-A.
0: Exactly. Exactly. Um, (laughs) But yeah, he won a lot of money doing that and they had teams they had the hand signals and everything
1: now did they did he get discovered and they shut him down or he's no, he walking just away he her.
0: decided he was getting addicted to it and so he decided how earth?
1: Needed- nobody ever quits when they're winning that doesn't happen
0: well i didn't really ask maybe we should call him back
1: there's no way well just get into it on the interview if you have the chance and if you don't have time that's fine but um yeah that's no problem i'm excited to hear that one anyway and uh would you like to hear what's going on with florida man
0: Oh, there's always something going oh, on oh there's florida, always man.
1: something happening this is 70 74 year old florida man in brevard county florida which i think is somewhere up on the panhandle but i can't remember um evidently he had a verbal disagreement with one of his neighbors so he pulled out an eight inch blade knife from a drawer in his home and was actively following this woman throughout the residence uh, and then out into the streets and into her driveway the interesting thing was you know he's 74 years old he's trying to keep up with this younger woman that he's arguing with uh-huh. he needed a scooter
0: <laughs> he, he was chasing her, the her
1: around the neighborhood with a knife on a scooter on a, on a rascal <laughs> <laughs> when officers arrived zarelli his name was uh, Zorelli, was actively following the woman up the driveway of the residence Upon speaking to him, officers reported smelling alcohol on his breath, as as well as hearing him spontaneously utter that he wanted to stab the man he was chasing while he had a chance. Now, that's strange that he wanted to stab the man he was chasing, given that he was following a woman. A woman, right?
0: Well, all, all she would have had to do is go through a sand pit, and he wouldn't have been able.
1: they <laughs> just some thick mud.
0: Yeah, yeah, and they got plenty of that in Florida. Oh my god! Well, you
1: know the rascals. I mean, what? How big are the wheels on those things?
0: They're not big. They're they're just like six maybe, inches, maybe, maybe
1: something like that. Maybe six, yeah, just go off a curb, heel high, center. <laughs> Or for that matter, go up a curb. I mean, what's he going to do?
0: He had to find the little ramp somewhere down the block.
1: He's going back and forth. Who the hell's got the curb cut around here?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Well, no one chased um, our guest Joel out of any casinos, especially not on a uh, not on a. uh, They didn't scooter
1: him out with a blade.
0: No, he was smart enough. He he figured out when he needed to leave.
1: It was probably when he saw the guy on the scooter with the knife coming towards him.
0: Uh, that was probably some of it. But yeah, he he, to talks, leave. About, he <laughs> talks about how to act natural. Uh-huh. <laughs> Cause like acting natural, that's like, <laughs> that's like an oxymoron right there. Right. But, mm-hmm. uh, but he talks about the, yeah, the demeanor you have to have going in and, and it's, it's fascinating. It's fascinating.
1: Well, um, let's get into that. I want to go here.
0: Let's do it. Let's go talk to Joel it's tracy again back with another episode of truth lies and cover-ups and today i have a super cool guest he's a friend of mine joel block he's a big time money guy and former i don't know maybe current card counter and so i thought it would just be really neat to have him on to talk about uh what he's done and what he's doing now in in the uh, because basically joel you're a gambler uh, in a lot of ways that I think are are really cool. Uh, informed gambling. So why don't you like let us know a little bit about you?
2: Informed gambling. I love that. That's uh, that's that's a cool way to put it. But um, listen, I started my career when I was in college. I, I played cards and uh, you know paid for a lot of what I did uh, by playing cards and ended up going into the venture capital and the hedge fund business, which is uh, uh, you know some people would say, well, listen, you seem like you're still a professional gambler. Uh, I wouldn't say it's exactly like that because uh, there's a big difference between professional investors and retail investors. And we can talk about, you know, what some of those differences are, but, uh, Hey, listen, I look at the world, I calculate odds, I figure out what's going to happen and, uh, and then place my bets.
0: Okay. All right. Okay. So let's, let's, uh, and you're also doing a lot of keynote, uh, speaking and things like that. So we will talk about that in a little bit about how to become an advantage player. Cause it's, I just, I'm fascinated by that. Um, Let's talk about the card counting situation <laughs> and, and how that uh, came up. So when, when did this go on and how did you do?
2: Well, when I was, when I was about uh, 20 years old, I, uh, I read a book on, on memorization and I learned how to memorize uh, you know cards. I learned how to have a trained memory from Harry Lorraine, the very famous uh, magician. And it's not a magic trick. It's trained memory is something that any of us can learn how to do. And I thought, well, gee, if I can memorize decks of cards, I could probably go to Las Vegas and that would be a cool thing. So I bought a book on, uh, on how to count cards and, and I learned to become really, really good at it. And I went to, actually went to a seminar that a guy was doing and he was trying to sell people into his blackjack seminar. And at the end, he says, are you going to join my seminar? I said, no, I already know how to do it. And he said, oh, really? Uh, do you know how to count a deck cards? I said, I do. I said, "You know, you can take out one card out of the bottom. And I can look at the other 51 cards and I can tell you what the bottom card is. And he goes, that's great. How fast? I said, I can do it in 18 seconds. Whoa. Said, yeah, he goes, for a beginner, that's pretty good. I go, what do you mean for a beginner? He goes, well, yeah, you know, you're a beginner. He goes, I can do it in seven seconds. Uh-huh. And I, I'm like, oh my God. So that guy, he and I became fast friends. He took me under his wing. He taught me how to play. Turned out he was from a pretty, uh, you know, pretty reputable uh, operation. One of the big gamblers. And uh, they wait, took wait, me under their up. team.
0: That reputable gambling <laughs>
2: yeah you know um, believe it or not uh, there were some very well-known gamblers in the 80s uh-huh. uh, Kenny Houston was one of the big time guys that uh, did Blackjack J- uh, Jerry Patterson this was his uh, his crew uh-huh. and so there were some big time guys that that ran gambling operations I mean they, they weren't they weren't bad guys I and mean, they were good guys that taught other people how to do it they, they had really uh, breakthrough stuff they relied on computer technology to develop odds and you know where this all came from in the 60s when computers were kind of new, Uh, They ran billions and billions of simulations of hands to figure out what the best play is for every hand. And the thing about blackjack, blackjack is a guaranteed deal. If you learn how to play blackjack and you play it perfectly, it is guaranteed that you will win. Uh, You got to get in the long term, though, by the way. I mean, you can't. It doesn't mean you're going to win every hand. Mm -hmm. But uh, advantage players and advantage players, a nickname that I was given by the uh, folks in Las Vegas because. Uh, anybody who can beat one of their unbeatable games, a game of skill, mm-hmm. uh, is called an advantage player. You know, the house has typically the, the advantage. It's the house advantage. But an advantage player is somebody who has the advantage over the house. And that was me because I was an expert player. And And actually, uh, I take those uh, skills, those attitudes uh, into everything I do in my life. And I teach people. That's kind of what my keynote is really about, is how to be an advantage player. And and I turn advantage uh, people, you know, people into advantage players and that's my deal. But, um, blackjack is a guaranteed deal. If you do it right, if you play properly and you learn how to make it happen. And so in the sixties, they did all these simulations and calculations, and that was kind of the beginning of computers. And, uh, and that's, uh, then, you know, people like us can learn how to do that. And, uh, and it goes on from there.
0: Okay. So let's back up a little bit. What's the trick to, because I have a lot of questions. You said you know how to, uh, I guess, memorize a deck. What's the sound bite on how to do that?
2: Well, okay. So there's two things. Uh, card counting is not memorizing. Uh, card counting is different. So okay. Harry Lorraine, who is a memory expert, I actually had a system for memorizing a deck of cards and every card would have a uh, a picture attached to it. And so you'd make the picture and then you'd have like a little board in your head and you'd look at the cards. And as you're looking at the cards, you would strike down one of the pictures and then you'd run through your mind all the different pictures. And the ones that hadn't been struck down uh, was the one that was, uh, let's say, let's say somebody put five cards in their pocket, those five cards would be left on your board. And as you got better at it, it really worked. That's not how blackjack happens. Blackjack is not about that because in blackjack, you got to remember that a 50 card, 52 cards, and there might be six decks, which is 312. Yeah. Um, of all those cards, uh, there really are very, very few things that are important. And the trick to blackjack is really finding the very few things that are important that you pay attention to. So, for example, suits don't matter in blackjack; it, yeah. they just don't matter at all. Right. It only matters uh, two through uh, you know through ten, and then the face cards. Mm-hmm. So you eliminate all those. Uh, The fact that there's six packs of cards, five of them are duplicates. So you erase those too. So the fact that, you know, so now you're down to, you've got 312, you erase all the six packs of cards. So you're down to 52. You take out all the suits, you're down to 13 cards. And then the computer's figured out that you have really three piles. You have low, medium, and high. And it turns out that the medium cards uh, really don't make any difference. The, The low cards help the dealer the high cards help the player and the neutral cards don't help anybody they or they mm-hmm. help both sides just equally so you really don't only have to pay attention to the ratio between low cards and high cards and this isn't a blackjack lesson so i'm not expecting anybody's going to kind of catch on and go to a casino from doing right,
0: this. right yeah no <laughs> but
2: the bottom line is that of 52 uh, cards or 312 wherever you start there's only two things that matter low cards and high cards and you just keep track of low cards and high cards and it's much simpler to do. And I actually teach audiences how to do this in a couple of minutes. And then when I give them a little uh, demonstration, everybody in the room is able to do it. And it's totally fun and they totally get it. And, you know, when, they, when, they, when I show them 19 cards and I ask them what the 20th card is and they all know what it is. And then I ask them, you know, what is that? A lucky guess. Was it a magic trick? It's not a magic trick. It's, it's, uh, it's advantage play. Mm -hmm. And people who play with an advantage, know how to figure things out that are right under your nose that other people just don't notice. They don't see, they can't Mm -hmm. figure out. And and that really is the bottom line. There are some people, I mean, listen, you've got a set of skills at looking at circumstances. Mm -hmm. I mean, those circumstances exist and we all see them, but not everybody notices them. And experts notice things that other people don't notice. And that's what advantage players do. So, advantaged players really look for things that other people don't see, even though they're hiding in plain sight.
0: Okay. Okay. So, and that is what I do is teach people how to see what's hidden in plain sight, right? With lie detection and body language and things like that. So, uh, okay. So, let's, let's take us back to the first time, because you're out in LA, and did you go to Vegas with your skills? Yeah. Okay. So, you yeah. go to Vegas, you're what, 20 years old, 21, and yeah. you... Um, you walk in and you sit down at a table. Like, what happens?
2: So, first of all, part of the training in blackjack, and these guys trained me very, very well. Mm-hmm. It's not only about cards. It's not only, you know, you have to pay attention to everything. Number one, you have to uh, be able to play the cards perfectly. And and there's so many distractions in a casino that you have to be able to play Uh, you know, without being interfered by all the distractions, the waitresses, the smoking, the the Mm -hmm. other players, the screaming, the yelling, the music, all the things that are happening. So you have to be able to, you know, be so good at this, that those things don't bother you. And, but one of the other things, one of the last things that you learn after you've mastered all the other parts Uh is what's called casino comportment, how you handle yourself in a casino.
0: Oh yes. Let's talk about that.
2: Because this is the part that's really important. Like if you walk in and you're incredibly stiff and you're focused and staring at your cards and you're trying counting on your fingers, trying to memorize. I mean, you're going to be spotted like in 10 seconds that that everybody's going to recognize that, that something is unusual about how you play. Because most people are not serious when they play. Most people are having fun. They're drinking, mm-hmm. they're lighthearted, they're, yeah, they're yeah. there to have some recreation. So really casino comportment is acting like everybody else acts. How do you act in a casino? Mm-hmm. And you have to act casual, you know, whatever your style is and you, everybody's kind of playing a character, you know, whether it's, Uh uh, you know, the casual casino guy, uh, you know, one of these tech moguls nowadays, whatever it is, uh, you have to be like everybody else so that they don't notice you. And so you can only be, uh, you know, have that casino comportment thing managed or or mastered once Uh you have mastery of the rest of the game. Uh So part of the advantage play here Uh is being really good at, you know, at Uh the game so that you can do the last piece, which is act normal. (laughs) (laughs)
0: And <laughs> act <acting> normal <laughs>
2: normals, which is probably a funny thing for you because that's yeah. exactly what uh, you know you're looking for is out of normal.
0: Yeah. Okay, so then so you got to act normal. So you're acting normal, I guess. You walk in, you're acting normal. Things are good. Like what do you know what casino you were at?
2: Um I probably at that time was at the Stardust. I played oh, a yeah. lot at the Stardust uh, which which now is the the uh the new Hilton um the Resorts World Casino, and they okay. redeveloped that property. But um, you know, I remember that, that you know, number one, we wouldn't play at any one casino for more than an hour or two. You know, mm-hmm. you'd move around a lot so that nobody kind of ever kind of caught on to what was going on, and mm-hmm. you know, so there's there was a lot of uh, rhythm to that. But we would uh, we would play. uh, You know, sometimes we would win, sometimes you wouldn't win. And here's the trick to uh to blackjack: mm-hmm. is you don't win every hand, but By counting the cards and knowing when the advantage swings to your favor, Mm -hmm. you push up more money at the times when you know that there's advantage for you. When there's more high cards in the deck ready to come out, uh, that's when you're going to push up more money. Now, you might lose uh, when there's more money up front, so you might lose more, but that's when you get your 21s, your double downs, and the other Mm -hmm. things that are good for you, and that's when you win more too. Mm -hmm. So the winning happens really when the odds are in your favor, and that's when you're pushing more chips up. And that's what people have to really learn in business is that, you know, you don't win every hand in business, but the losing hands are what prepare you to take down your big wins. And that's a very important lesson that everybody has to really kind of remember. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I I would play, I'd win some, I'd lose some, you know, but you got to keep a straight face and you got to keep playing and you got to have belief that you're in your system, that the thing is going to work. And then eventually uh, things go your way and the chips start coming your way and you know and, and you got to act like everybody else you can't get over excited you can't uh you know get any more excited than anybody else would which might be a lot, yeah. lot excited or it might be not it depends on you know what it is so i i really uh, i don't remember the first days because it was a long time ago you uh-huh. know the, the question is a great question but what i do remember certainly is that um uh, it was an exciting time mm-hmm. Now, believe it or not um Playing at that level is, is not fun. It's a little stressful.
0: Really? Okay.
2: Well, well yeah, because it uh, it it's it's you know, you have to concentrate, you have to really pay attention. It's not like mm-hmm. throwing the dice at the craps table. I mean, you're really focused. And part of the reason people don't generally last a long time in blackjack is because it's a lot of work.
0: Mm-hmm. I mean, it
2: really is a lot of work. And think of it like this: here's how the money works. Okay. Is that you probably will make about one percent of all the money that you move back and forth across the table. So if you're betting a hundred dollars and you're playing head to head with a dealer, which is not easy to do by the way, but let's say that head to head, that's about, uh, let's say 60 hands an hour, one hand a minute, let's just say, and you're playing a hundred dollars, that's $6,000. You can expect at that rate to make about $60 an hour. That's that's not much. That's not that much. So you got to be moving a lot more money than that
0: uh-huh. in order
2: to do it. So you got to start playing the, some of the high limit stuff, you know, playing, uh, you know, several hundred dollars a hand and you got to kind of really break in. And that's why guys developed these other uh, systems called big man and some of these other games. And big man was awesome because uh-huh. what would happen is that they'd have uh, us little guys sitting at each table in the pit, and when the deck at my table would get hot, I'd scratch the back of my head or I'd give a signal of some uh-huh. kind. And the big man uh, would come in and would drop down a large clump of chips, not knowing what the count was, not knowing anything about what was happening at the table.
0: Uh-huh. Uh-huh.
2: And, and then I would give a signal on how to play the hand because the big man didn't know how to play the hand because they didn't know where you were in the deck. So, uh, and then the team would split the winnings that would come from the big man doing that. And here's the logic of this. And this is a really cool logic. What, what it is, is that if you knew that half the time the hands are going to be crappy and half the times the hands are going to be really good, you're thinking, well, gee, if I could really only play against the really good hands, wouldn't that be better? Yeah. Well, the casinos don't allow that. They don't allow you to sit out half the hands because that's an irregular behavior. They would recognize that that's something that would not be normal.
1: Uh-huh. So the
2: big man only comes in and drops in when they when the count gets really high and when things are really in your favor. Mm-hmm. So the big man would always be playing against a positive shoe or really favorable circumstances. And, and then the team would split the winnings. And that's uh, that was a great game that, uh, and, and that's why now they have uh, no mid shoe entry and some other stuff. I mean, so a lot of the rules have changed to kind of adapt to some of these things that counters used to do.
0: Okay. So, so how big was your team?
2: Uh, there were six of us,
0: six of us. So it was kind of like that movie. Uh,
2: it was exactly like, it was exactly like the movie. What was, was that
0: a, movie called? Winner, winner, chicken dinner. 21. 21. Right. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So, so did you have cash in your um, ceiling and everything? Or like how no, much you really didn't. I never, in I never, here? I never Joel?
2: had, no, I never had that much, but um, that, that part was all dramatized and everything. Uh-huh. But, but what happened in the casino was real. Mm -hmm. That, you know, that there would be uh, six of us sitting at a table and then there'd be usually, uh, you know, the big man. So maybe the seventh person would be on Mm -hmm. the team and then they would wander around and they would drop in and out. Um, You know, at that time, the casino, the camera technology was good, Mm -hmm. but it wasn't like it is now. They didn't have facial recognition. Uh, A lot of things were different. at at that time. I mean, that movie was based on something that happened around 1990. I was playing in the Mm eighties. So it really, it preceded the MIT thing by just Mm -hmm. a little bit, but it was almost identical. And, you know, it was, uh, it was real.
0: So then what was the biggest hand you played that you won?
2: Oh, probably a thousand bucks.
0: Okay. So, so like some in the eighties, that was a lot. Well, for
2: in the eighties, that was a lot. And I was 20 years old. You got to remember. Yeah. I was just a kid, you know, so for me, that was a lot of dough. So Uh really, uh, you know, I I never played, uh, you know, uh, five or ten thousand dollars a hand. No, nothing. I never got anywhere like that. Uh But my skills were right at the top of the game. My skills were really good.
0: Now, why'd you quit?
2: Well, I'll tell you what. I knew that if I kept playing, that I would have dropped out of school and that would have become my life. I I knew then. I I I had an experience. I had a final exam at UCLA. And I called the professor and told him that I was going to a wedding or something where I was really in Las Vegas playing cards. Oh, And, and, and I, I looked, took a hard look at myself and I said, you know what, that behavior tells me that I am really not going down the right path, mm. and that my life is going to be uh, dictated by this Las Vegas thing and probably in the long run uh, is probably not going to be that great. So that, that was me. That was my experience. Uh, a lot of people quit because it's, it's monotonous. It just is monotonous. You know mm-hmm. I mean? It, ultimately think about that. If you're making 60 or hundred bucks an hour, it's a grind yeah. and you're grinding the money out and you got to be jumping around between casinos. I mean, there are, listen, there are people that, that build pretty good sized bankrolls, but at, at the end of the day, they're really working hard for it. It's a hard, it's a hard deal. I took instead those skills and move them into something that was a much higher stakes game,
0: mm-hmm. but
2: using very similar kinds of logic and skills. And so I parlayed blackjack into something much bigger and better.
0: Okay. So let's uh let's talk about that. Because what what are you doing now? Well and it okay, because I know what you're doing now. So what are you doing now? And because you know it's truth, lies, and cover-ups, what kind of frauds, what kind of lies are you seeing within that?
2: Yeah. Well, listen, I um I have spent most of my life in the venture capital and the hedge fund business. Mm -hmm. So the professional money business, I mean, basically investors give me money and then I go uh, buy assets with it. I mean, I find things to buy and then we share the profits. That's been the Mm -hmm. business that I've been in for, uh, for 30 years. It's a wall street type business, Mm -hmm. Uh, raising capital and and doing that sort of thing is, uh, is wall street. And, you know, listen, I've seen a lot of stuff, good, bad. I've been around a lot of people, good, bad. And, uh, Mm -hmm you know, I'm happy to, you know, answer any questions about, uh, you know, the kinds of things that I've seen. Uh, I, I can't remember them off the top of my head because there's too many, but uh, you know, but go ahead and ask well, away. And I'll, okay. I'll, so, I'll, so uh, one
0: of the things, and this is perfect. One of the things that got me into focusing on fraud with body language and realizing the value of it is that I ran across, and this is several years ago, I ran across a report by Stanford that went in and they did body language analysis on hedge fund managers and predicted the success of that fund. So I'm curious, what do you see it like, what are you doing when you're sniffing out rats in, in, with your peers, right? Hedge fund managers and, uh, and, and, like, is that a thing or what's, what's your position on that?
2: Well, you know, keep in mind that I generally don't uh, deal with other uh, hedge fund managers. I mean, I have my fund, they have their fund. So we're Mm -hmm. all doing our own thing. And, uh, you know, we, we meet together, we see each other. I mean, there are guys that I know, and, uh, you know, there are guys that just, you kind of get a sense about, you know, what they're, what they're about, Mm -hmm. um, I don't make a habit of poking my nose in other people's business all that much. I mean, I, I have a pretty good sense about what people are doing, and I have a pretty uh-huh. strong opinion about uh, you know whether I like their style or not. But um, you know, most people are not intentionally waking up in the morning committing a fraud. That, mm-hmm. that, that in my experience, I mean, I mean, problems happen in business but most of the time it's not deliberate when somebody's doing it deliberately. That's, that's a different kind of problem, mm-hmm. but you know, when they get themselves into a, into a trouble, uh, that's something different. So.
0: Let's talk about that because Elizabeth Holmes verdict just came out. Yeah. 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 And I, and we talked about it. I have been fascinated by Elizabeth Holmes uh, and Theranos uh, just because she, I, th- I feel like she was able to build something really big, really young. And, my thought is yeah, it for sure went wrong and she for sure wasn't honest and made some bad decisions. But do you think most business fraud like that happened? Like what where's the line between okay, where do they step into fraud versus like the Silicon Valley? We're trying to figure this out yeah. and we need a lot of money to do it.
2: You know, let, let me let me um let me draw a couple of um, draw a couple of uh, lines here in the sand and And this is not about uh, excusing her behavior. and This is not saying her behavior was okay or anybody's behavior like that is okay. But there's sort of a culture in Silicon Valley. And remember, I'm from the venture capital Mm -hmm. world. It's it's the same world I've done. I built a company which I sold to a Fortune 500. I mean, so I've done a lot of the same things. And, you know, there's sort of a culture of... uh, Of And and this is not unique to venture capital, by the way. I mean, Mm -hmm. it exists in every industry of bloating, you know, where companies, they overly boast. They they tell you more about what's happening than Mm -hmm. what is maybe true. Um, The difference in venture capital is that you're not dealing with consumers. You know, you're not dealing with just like mom and pops, regular folks who aren't Mm -hmm. really that educated. You're dealing with the smartest people on the planet. Yeah, And, you know, it's sort of like a boxing ring. And, you know, these people, these, these really tough, really high up the scale people are are kind of working together. And, and that's, uh, that doesn't make it okay to lie or cheat or do anything that's improper. But the culture of exaggeration is significant. And there's sort of this fake it till you make it. Mm-hmm. Uh, concept there that, uh, hey, listen, we're doing awesome. We couldn't be doing any better. We're breaking records every minute of the day. Things are going incredible. And, and that, that culture kind of exists. And that culture is sort of what they expect. Because if you say anything short of that, you'll never get any money. And right. so that's kind of the culture that exists. And you kind of have to play into that culture. And, and then uh, I just heard something on the Wall Street Journal just uh, recently uh, commenting on this Theranos deal that there were people looking at putting $100 million into her, into her project mm-hmm. and they didn't do any due diligence. They didn't do any research. Like, like they did very, very basic stuff and they didn't want to do any research because they didn't want to make her upset that maybe she would rescind the opportunity to invest $100 million in her deal. Mm-hmm. So they had so many people standing in line with $100 million that people that were going to put money in at that level didn't really do any research. So think about how crazy it is. I mean, she's getting pinned on all this stuff, but she's just part of an environment. If I was on that jury and I don't know everything they heard, just knowing what the environment's Mm -hmm. like, she did what she needed to do to be successful, but I don't think she woke up in the morning and said, uh, with a paper and a pad, I'm gonna do a fraud right now and here's what the fraud's gonna be.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: I think she just started telling a story and the story got bigger and bigger and bigger. And, you know, at some point the, the patients who they didn't convict her on, uh, you know, were, were injured or something bad happened to those people. But but those people were kind of incidental. The people that they really focused on were the, the financial people. They probably needed more focus on those patients because those were people who really were innocent bystanders. Yeah, I thought the so. other people were, were kind of the, the investors were, listen, these are wealthy people. It's, you know, it, it's kind of what it is. But um, she kind of got caught up in this whole world. Mm-hmm. Of, of this is how the world works it's it, there's a lot of ethical issues in 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 a place like that where people are racing to make more money and these are billionaires that want to become double billionaires right and, and the things that they'll do to become double billionaires or quadruple billionaires or whatever that's called uh, is pretty crazy and she catered to it
0: now so do you think because because they were outfitting other um Machines to look like theirs and doing tests on on blood on other machines that weren't theirs. Where do you think the line was in fraud versus versus we're going to figure this out and we need a lot of money and we're on the target versus okay now we're using someone else's machines.
2: Yeah, you know I'll, I'll tell you what uh, where I draw the line has to do with facts.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So puffing, which which is just like we're we're great, we're going to be great, we're going to do great. That's puffing, but. Um, but the, but this this test was run on our machine and it really wasn't. That's a fact. That's mm-hmm. a lie. Yeah. A lie is a lie, and lies are always uh, a problem.
1: Mm-hmm. And, and,
2: and that that's kind of where I draw the line. When you distort a fact uh, that is absolutely inaccurate, to me, that's that's where there's a problem. Everything else. And I'm not justifying the behavior. I'm just saying that that's kind of how I think about it.
1: Mm-hmm. That
2: if there's a fact and the fact is uh, is is a lie, then then it's a lie, and that's really where it is. So if you uh, you know change financial reports, uh-huh. if you say a machine was was working and it really wasn't working, uh, those kinds of things, big problems.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, um, like the the Theranos case, along with a lot of the other fraud cases that are out there. Um it was a whistleblower it was a whistleblower and 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 you were saying and this matches you know what I hear all the time is that is that most fraud is it happens from a disgruntled employee like like the reporting of the fraud or uh, like what's your take on on that versus like finding it in an accounting situation?
2: Well think of think of it like this uh, you know if uh, if you're gonna lie mm-hmm. and you're gonna do something that's deceitful uh, and you know, you can't let other people know that you're doing it because somebody is going to be an honest person and they're going yeah. to want to tell the truth. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think your question is, how do you figure out this kind of stuff? You know, can accountants and, and certified fraud examiners and these kinds of people mm-hmm. who are experts in this can they figure this out? You'd be, you well, you might not be surprised, but listeners might be surprised to find out that most financial people cannot really uncover fraud. Like audits are not designed to uncover fraud. Audits are designed to more or less confirm that management has written down their financial Mm -hmm. uh, historical activities correctly. Mm -hmm. That's what audits are supposed to do. Well, uh, if there's a fraud, and a fraud really is, uh, you know, when two people conspire together uh, to do something, uh, it's almost impossible for an accounting system to figure that out because you build these internal controls. And when uh, two people... Uh, conspire together and they break the internal control. It's, it's very difficult to figure that out. So how do fraud people do this? And I've been exposed to some of these really fascinating people, people that worked on the uh, Madoff case and other mm-hmm. things. And what's interesting is that uh, a guy that worked on the Madoff case said that for all these years, uh, the financial people couldn't figure out the Madoff thing. They had a sense that something was mm-hmm. wrong, but they couldn't actually put their finger on what it was because just they just couldn't do it. But the way they finally cracked the case was through a behavioral analysis. It was the human being that broke down, mm-hmm. not the books and records. That uh, you know that the wife's behavior that she withdrew all this money like the day before uh, he was indicted. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, those behaviors are what kind of told people, "Hey, listen, nobody uh, just coincidentally withdraws ten million dollars the day before something bad happens." Uh, it's it just it's too coincidental, and there were too many coincidences for it to be believable. And so behavior is sort of the, the way that most of this stuff gets figured out.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And, and that's just that's just the reality of it, is that most of it, accounting, it does what it does, but when two people override the accounting system, the only way you can figure out is through behavior. And by the way, when you've got a second person, there's uh, there's there's a real good chance that somebody's gonna blow your whistle.
0: Oh yeah. Oh, for sure. So let's talk about what you're doing now. In, uh because you're doing keynote speaking, but you're doing consulting and training and because you have your own events, don't you?
2: Yeah, well, we uh, I teach other people how to set up hedge funds. I mean, mm-hmm. we have probably one of the most substantial uh, companies in the country that helps other people set up funds, mostly real estate investors that want to mm-hmm. uh, buy, fix, flip, rehab uh, facilities, mm-hmm. do whatever. Um, so that's that's part of it. But I'm invited regularly by companies, mostly executive audiences, to. Mm-hmm. Uh, really turn their leaders into advantage players because, you know, every every advantage player is a leader, but not every leader is an advantage player. And every mm-hmm. every leader needs to have the advantage. They need to figure out how to be more competitive than other people, how to be uh, have a better sniffer and how to figure things out better than other people. And mm-hmm. uh, those are the kinds of things that I help companies to uh, to get better at and, and really helping them to avoid disruption and to, uh, you know, be incredibly innovative. I mean, those are all things having been in the venture capital world those are things that, uh, that I just love to do. And, uh, you know, I advise companies on these kinds of things and, uh, and help companies understand, you know, by the way, when like private equities uh, companies come in and are buying targets in their industries, mm-hmm. why are they doing it? How to negotiate with these people? Because they don't really understand the mentality in a lot of cases of those private equity outfits. I mean, listen, negotiation, uh, uh, you know, is, is a lot about body language you know, and mm-hmm. most people just can't read body language in a negotiation. It's oh, one horrible. thing to read it in a, in a crime situation, but to mm-hmm. be able to read, uh, you know, intention in a negotiating situation, that's a different skill that most people probably just don't have. And a, a lot of the executives that we run into, uh, those are the kinds of questions that they ask.
0: Oh yeah. Well, the executives are the worst, right? But, um, y- You'll call me, I'll come to one of your events and we'll get them straightened out. Uh, So, So, okay, Joel, how can people get a hold of you? Because I mean, you got a wealth of information, not just on card counting, but on a lot of more profitable ventures. Yeah, well, you know what? I I don't
2: teach people how to count cards. I I love to talk about it. It's a lot of fun, but uh, probably the best place. Go to joelblock.com and there's plenty of stuff there and people are welcome to it. And anybody who wants to reach out to me, certainly welcome.
0: Oh, excellent. Joel, thank you so much for coming on Truth, Lies, and Cover-Ups. You're just fantastic.
2: Well, thanks, Tracy. Nice to see you.
0: Thanks for joining me. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast, rate, and review it. I'll see you next time.